0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the rising gas prices contributing to inflation and their impact on Biden and the Democrats' prospects in in the November midterms, which have led the administration to consider waiving federal taxes on gasoline. Joining us to discuss Biden's failed efforts to get the Saudi king to pump more oil to lower the price at the pump – is Anel Sheeline, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. We will discuss the coincidence that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, met with his pal Jared Kushner just before Biden's unsuccessful phone call with MBS's 86-year-old father, raising the possibility MBS is waiting Biden out in the hope of Trump returning to the White House. Then we'll look into the consequences of a cutoff of gas to Europe from Russia if war breaks out in Ukraine and speak with Tara Connolly a senior gas campaigner at Global Witness, an international NGO working towards a more sustainable, just and equal planet. She has over a decade of experience in EU energy policy and joins us to discuss her article at CNN, Putin Could Turn Off Europe's Gas Tap. This is the Solution, in which she advocates green electricity solutions to get off the EU's dependence on Russian gas and reduce global warming. Then finally we'll examine the arrest and perp walk of the former president of Honduras who the U.S. wants to extradite to face drugs and weapons charges which could result in Juan Orlando Hernandez joining his brother Tony in a federal prison where he is serving a life sentence. Joining us is Annie Bird, a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala, where she advances justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. Courts, and Guatemalan and Honduran Courts. She was a co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009 and was also director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. And before we go to our first guest... Since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Anel Sheline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anel Sheeline.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden had a phone call a few days ago with King Salman of Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure, you know, there mean reports that Salman himself may not be completely mentos, But the reason, of course, is that Biden is talking to the king and not to the crown prince is that he's made it clear that he wants to make MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, a pariah for what happened in the murder of Khashoggi. So given that he has sort of locked himself into that situation, do you think that MBS is simply waiting him out? Because clearly the Saudis normally help out American presidents when it comes to elections and reducing the price of gas at the pump. This time around, it's really clear that the Saudis aren't budging in spite of what may have happened in the conversation with MBS's father?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in general, I, I I do think it's not terribly surprising that the Saudis haven't agreed to a production increase. I mean, they are sticking with the OPEC plus agreement. Um, this had, you know, around Uh, Last summer, there was a question because the UAE did want to increase production and the Saudis insisted that no, you know, they they needed to stick to the the sort of production limits that had been agreed to in the context of COVID when, as we may recall, the price of oil dipped into negative territory for the first time. Um, And the OPEC plus members have have maintained these production cuts. Um, And so, you know, again, it's while certainly it, this may have an impact in terms of Biden's chances or the, the possibility that the Democrats may lose control of Congress in the midterms, I don't really see this necessarily as, as squarely aimed by Saudi Arabia at the U.S. I mean, if anything, this is hurting China much more than it's hurting the United States. I mean, China is is significantly more dependent on Saudi oil than the U.S. is. Um, the U.S. only imports seven percent of our oil from the Saudis.
0: Well, but it's hurting Biden politically, is it not? Inflation is considered a real problem, and the fact that oil is now up around hundred dollars a barrel, obviously, it means that the Saudis are going to make a huge amount of money. They expected they'll earn three hundred seventy five billion dollars. This year, more than double the 145 billion that they made in 2020. So, given that there's a windfall for both the big producers, along, you know, obviously Russia as well, and it it seems that what's happening in Ukraine may be also a factor in driving up the price of oil. This is surely a problem for Biden, is it not? Well, you know, I
1: certainly agree with you. The Saudis are benefiting hugely, and as you said, they're going to have uh, really a record-breaking year in terms of profits. Um, as are many other oil-producing countries. Um, as as will states like Alaska and Texas. I mean, it is important to keep in mind that the United States is also a very important player in in the production of of oil. And you know, furthermore, if If the real concern here, you know, if the U.S. really wanted to bring more oil um, capacity into the global market, Biden could do things like move faster on lifting sanctions on oil from Iran, for example, or changing our our sanctions policy towards Venezuela. So, you know, I I think in, in general, it is just important to keep in mind that there are a lot of factors at play here in terms of what is influencing the price. And again, if, if Biden were really completely panicked about this, he has other levers he could pull. But, you know, to your point that historically the, the Saudis have been perhaps more willing to go along with um, American requests uh, as, as far as trying to allow for more more production, for example, um, although there's also a history there of the Saudis not going along with American requests, you know, for during the the '70s, for example, obviously there there was uh, ma- there were major disagreements in terms of U.S. policy, um, and, and Saudi Arabia and many other Arab countries were very frustrated with the U.S., um, leading uh, contributing to the the oil embargo after
0: '73. Right. So in, in '79, of course. It really hit Jimmy Carter hard. He was getting slammed uh, both on the price of oil and on inflation, and he was a one-term president, which kind of reinforces what I'm saying about Biden, doesn't it?
1: No, it does. And, you know, I, I think, you know, regardless of whether it's really the Saudis trying to stick it to Biden here or just the combination of factors having to do with COVID, you know, other OPEC Plus members sticking to the, you know, the, they operate as a cartel. I mean, they're, they're all... Um, working together to keep the price higher, which is in their own interest. It's understandable they would behave in this way. Um, But I think partly this just highlights the absurdity that the United States remains – so dependent on a commodity that we, in the end, do not have much control over and reiterates the, the need for our economy to get off of fossil fuels and to get onto alternative energies that are not going to be subject to these same sorts of external controls as far as what, you know, the, the price of solar energy or wind energy is not going to be determined by a cartel.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Anel Sheline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. So several days before President Biden had his phone call with uh, King Salman, Jared Kushner had traveled to the Middle East uh, and he met with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and other top Saudi officials, including the CEO of Aramco. So without getting conspiratorial, it does sort of raise a flag, doesn't it, that MBS and Kushner are pals, the Saudis are investing in Kushner's companies and i'm sure mbs would be happy if donald trump made a comeback in 2024 you're you're certainly right there
1: i would push back a little bit against the notion that biden has actually treated the saudis like a pariah i mean you know the the biden administration has in fact maintained weapons sales to saudi arabia um despite biden saying he was going to end U.S. involvement in that war. There's a question there about this offensive-defensive distinction, but the point is we continue to see the U.S. being complicit in this horrific war the Saudis are perpetrating on Yemen, and increasingly the concern is that the U.S. may get further involved in that because now we have the Houthis firing uh, drones and missiles at the UAE and possibly endangering American troops stationed there as well as in Saudi Arabia. So this In general, I think Biden has actually maintained sort of the status quo of a very close American-Saudi relationship, despite the fact that he doesn't get on the phone with MBS. Um, I I don't really think that that's that has not fundamentally altered the fact that the U.S. continues to um, support Saudi preferences in general. But I do agree with you that the Saudis loved having Trump in power and that MBS and Kushner have a very close relationship. Um, and I, it is entirely possible that the conversations that Kushner had with MBS while he was in the kingdom uh, may have had something to do with it. But again, I just want to push back on this notion that Biden has actually held the Saudis to account
0: well, apparently in the, in the White House printout or readout of the conversation uh, with King Salman that Biden reaffirmed the willingness of the U.S. to aid Saudi Arabia in its so-called defensive operations against the Houthis following these recent attacks that you mentioned on the United Arab Emirates and on Saudi Arabia. So, but of course, what seems to be shuffled into the background in this hideous situation in Yemen is the fate of the people in Yemen itself and that's been monstrous uh, in terms of human rights abuses.
1: Exactly. Well, and you know, just to be clear, Saudi Arabia is the is the aggressor here. The the Houthis have committed horrible atrocities as well, but the the vast majority of deaths in Yemen, and almost 400,000 Yemeni civilians have died since the Saudis intervened in 2015. The, the Saudis are responsible for that, partly from, from air strikes that, that kill people or that, kill, that uh, destroy civilian infrastructure such that electricity and food is no longer available. But the Saudis are also imposing a blockade, which prevents fuel from getting into Yemen, which also then further exacerbates all of these other um, terrible problems. And the United States remains complicit in this, that the Saudi Air Force would not be able to fly without American contractors uh, providing spare parts and maintenance and and essentially keeping those planes in the air. And so even though the Biden administration did make, they, they said they wanted to end support for offensive action, they have not in fact followed up on that because the US had already sold hundreds of billions of dollars of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, much, many, a, a big chunk of arms deals came through under Trump, but also under Obama. Um, the fact that the Biden administration hasn't sold additional weapons that could that the Saudis could use to, to kill Yemeni civilians and to fire at the Houthis is fairly irrelevant. And also the Biden administration did sell things like attack helicopters, for example. And so there's a question there, well, how exactly are we defining an offensive weapon?
0: So just to touch on the work that you do, Anel Shiline, uh, I was interested here in the, in the sense that you're working on the strategic use of religious authority in, in the Arab monarchies and, of course, since 9-11. Of course, Saudi Arabia has it spread its form of Islam around the world, subsidized by enormous amounts of petrodollars, this austere, paranoid, and anti-Western version of Islam, uh, Wahhabism which has had detrimental effects in so many different countries. And it's led in many ways the fingerprints of al-Qaeda, of the Islamic State, of al-Shabaab and the Taliban are all tied in with a kind of a version of Wahhabism that they reflect. In the readout, incidentally, of the, the phone call that took place between King Salman and Joe Biden a few days ago, the Saudi readout begins with the language, Regarding energy and oil markets, the custodian of the two holy mosques stressed the importance of maintaining balance and stability in the oil markets. And then he wanted to say how King Salman was going to stick with the OPEC plus agreement. So the notion that they are the custodians of the two holy shrines of Islam have always been their justification for their legitimacy, right? Right but it's something that's obviously being questioned and not the least by the Iranians. So what's happening inside Saudi Arabia in terms of the popularity of the king amongst the young Saudis for opening Saudi Arabia up to movie theaters and boys and girls can I think can actually be even talk to each other. Where does that stand in terms of Wahhabism? Are they still exporting Wahhabism? So,
1: you're absolutely right in terms of the the pernicious effects of this Saudi interpretation of Islam historically. Um, Saudi Arabia did make some major changes after 9-11, as listeners may recall, um, the, almost all of the, the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, and this led to a crisis. Um, in Saudi American relations. Um, Saudi Arabia itself was also then dealing with multiple terrorist attacks in the early 2000s. And so the US and Saudi uh, intelligence forces worked very closely together to to thwart the efforts of Al Qaeda in those years. At the same time, Saudi Arabia really shut down a lot of some of its um, more uh, intolerant messaging, some of the, what it was sending abroad. But in many ways it was too late. As you said, these, these actors like the Taliban or ISIS, they, the, the seeds had been sown. Um, and so now at this point, when we have MBS, for example, um, saying that he's going to return Saudi Arabia to moderate Islam, this was something he said in October of 2017 at a big international conference, it was sort of a question of well, what do you mean return <laughs> and and what is what is this moderate islam you speak of um but it, but to to certainly affirm what you said major changes are underway in Saudi Arabia um the last time i was there was pre covid back in 2019 but it it was amazing to see how saudi society has shifted um and much of that really has to do with the efforts of king abdullah the previous king who sponsored something called the king abdullah scholarship program which sent hundreds of thousands of young Saudis abroad. And so this generation of, you know, essentially Saudi millennials have now come home and are no longer interested in having to abide by the same sorts of extreme restrictions that their parents and grandparents were were more accustomed to. Um, And so MBS remains popular among that generation. But part of his popularity derives from his major promises that he has made in terms of employment and economic growth. And it's unclear that he will be able to deliver on these. And on the one hand, he has um, been very brutal in consolidating power in himself. Um, But on the other hand, that has meant that he he, the buck stops with him. And so he will be held responsible if he's not able to deliver. And again, unfortunately, we instead of Saudi Arabia being able to to expend the resources that would be necessary to sort of shift uh, Saudi from what it was this you know, very shut down and um, quite unusual society in terms of, you know, the level of gender restriction. So he's trying to transform it so it'll be open for investment and tourism, et cetera. I mean, all of that will take a lot of resources and instead we have the Saudis continuing to pump hundreds of billions of dollars into bombing Yemen. So again, not not just for Yemen's sake, but even for the Saudis' sake. Um, I, I truly hope that, that an end to that war will be forthcoming. But I, I don't foresee that happening because the US continues to support it.
0: Well, Anel Shiline, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Anel Shiline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. We're gonna take a brief station break and back look into the consequences of a cut-off of gas to Europe from Russia if war breaks out in Ukraine.
2: How to The top. the to shaky-
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tara Connolly, who is a senior gas campaigner at Global Witness, an international NGO working towards a more sustainable, just, and equal planet. She has over a decade of experience in EU energy policy and has an article at CNN, Putin could turn off Europe's gas tap. This is the solution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tara Connolly. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Putin, I don't imagine, wants to cut off the gas. Gazprom would like to be a reliable supplier. But I guess the scenario would be that if there is a war in Ukraine and the sanctions that both the EU and the United States have promised, severe as they have uh, indicated, then perhaps Putin might retaliate against the sanctions by cutting off the gas supply is that your understanding of the sequence if it were to take place?
3: Yes, um, Russia is definitely threatening to and it has been you know for for a long time using its um, uh, leverage gas leverage uh, over over Europe and is con- is doing that right now, and I think that's um, really been entirely predictable it's not the first
0: time that Russia has done this I think what was it back in two thousand and nine? The supply was cut off for 20 days, and that did force the Europeans to consider diversifying. But at this point, Europe gets, what, about 40% of its gas from Russia, and then the next largest suppliers are Norway with 22%, Algeria with 18%, and Azerbaijan with 9%. And then there's an effort on the part of the U.S. and Qatar and others to supply liquid natural gas. But I take it that's a very small percentage. Is there any way that these other countries like uh, Norway and Algeria could ramp up their supplies? I think that's
3: what a lot of the diplomatic efforts have been going into, the EU's energy chief has been flying around, meeting various um, heads of government and was in the US recently as well to really talk up the uh, possibility of doing this. But if you crunch the numbers and a think tank in, in, in Brussels has done that, you know, it's clear that if Russia turns off the tap, Europe will have no choice but to start cutting gas demand. Um, that's just a simple reality um, That's and that's because Europe has done very little since the last time that Russia invaded or well, when Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014. So yes, it, ha- it happened in 2009 that there was a, a crunch uh, and there was also um, a similar crisis in 2014.
0: But as your article points out, in 2013, Russia in imports accounted for around 27% of the European Union's gas use. But now the gas use is up to 38% um, coming from Russia. So they haven't kicked the habit. In fact, it's (laughs) quite the opposite.
3: No, I mean, Europe is now even more dependent on Russian gas than it was in 2013. I mean, Europe, you know, import the numbers that you mentioned are correct. And in terms of volume, even Europe imports more gas today than it did in, in 2013. And, and back in 2014, what happened was, you know, Europe decided to adopt a diversification strategy. You know, EU leaders said, right, the problem is not gas, the problem is Russian gas. So let's try and buy gas from from other countries. Um, And that strategy has clearly failed. Um, And what I can say is that the reaction of uh, European leaders this time around is quite different from 2014, um, so it's not just a conversation about diversification of supply. It, they are talking a lot more about, you know, the need to actually cut Europe's overall gas imports. And given that domestic production in Europe is going down, um, I mean, you mentioned Norway, but really the North Sea has been declining for a long time, and, and you know that that is going to inevitably continue. Um, what the only tools you have left are to actually cut your your consumption of gas, your use of gas. So that's very welcome from our perspective because that also has benefits in terms of you know your uh, your climate uh, emit your carbon emissions, um, the health impacts of gas in people's homes and in um, you know in air quality in general. Um, and and that really should mean that we're seeing an acceleration of the uh, types of schemes that will help do that. For example, building renovations, electrification of heating, um, and really uh, building out renewables as quickly as possible.
0: Well, the Green Party, of course, are in coalition in the new German government with the head of the Green Party, Germany's new foreign minister. They've always been against Nord Stream 2, from what I understand. And uh, the new German Chancellor, uh, Scholz, was at the White House recently, where President Biden kept emphasizing that if the Russian tanks cross the border into Ukraine, the US will cut off the Nord Stream 2. But Scholz did not really reiterate it, uh, he sort of dodged it a little bit. I understand that there's quite a bit of support for Russia amongst the German elite. What can you tell us about that? Well, I know that former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder is on the board of Nord Stream 2. But one of the other aspects I've been told of why Germany maybe is hedging its bets over Nord Stream 2 is that they think that Donald Trump could come back and completely reverse everything that Biden's done as he did uh, reverse everything that uh, Obama had done.
3: Well, yeah, you're right that there are strong links between certain elements of the German political parties and and, and the, the, the gas the Russian gas industry. And Gerhard Schroeder is indeed, he has just been nominated onto the board of Gazprom. Um, I don't know about any um, fears about Trump coming back, but I can say that. The number one user of gas in Germany is, of course, the heavy industry, and they have a very clear interest in maintaining a cheap uh, as possible gas supply as they can. And I think that's, um, you know, such a significant driver of a lot of the German economy today that they have an oversized um, influence, perhaps over German um, policy in this area. Um, and that accounts for a lot of what you're what you're seeing there. But but actually, some of the comments that have come out of the German government recently around Nord Nord Stream two, are some of the strongest that I've ever seen in terms of um, you know saying that they're they're willing to consider pausing or taking a step back from from Nord Stream two. I've I've never seen um, statements as strong as the ones I've seen in in, in recent weeks or recent days rather.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Tara Connolly, who is a senior gas campaigner at Global Witness, an international NGO working towards a more sustainable, just and equal planet. And she has over a decade of experience in EU energy policy and has an article at CNN, Putin could turn off Europe's gas tap. This is the solution. So not only is there that possibility of Europe suddenly going into... The cold in a in a winter and having no gas or at least there's no i believe there's not much storage, so a real cutoff would be quite traumatic but at this point, your article points out that gas prices are going through the roof in the u k twenty two million households have been told their energy bills will rise by about a thousand dollars a year, and then in the Netherlands the gas price increase has gone up by 62%, and in Estonia, it's gone up by 122%. So who's making out with all of this? Is it Gazprom? Yeah, there
3: are definitely some winners and some losers in this um, this gas crunch. And, and, you know, that's before even some of the sabre rattling that we had seen, you know, Europe already since, you know, last summer really has been experiencing some extraordinary gas prices. And that's also led into extraordinary electricity prices because, you know, gas has been setting the, the price for electricity wholesale markets across Europe, and you've seen some astronomical figures. So households are being hit um, not only for the gas that they use to heat, uh, their homes, but also the electricity that they use to, um, you know, to, to to for the lighting and everything else that that you would use electricity for. Um, and governments are really having to to step in and, and help to mitigate the impacts on some of the hardest hit. Um, you know we're talking you know billions in the case of some countries. for example, France is spending 20 billion euro at least to try and um, support businesses and, 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 and households. Um, at the same time, you know major oil and gas companies are making unprecedented uh, profits. And we've seen some of them come out. Um, some of the profits that have been announced uh, for 2021, they've never been seen before. Um, ExxonMobil, I think the figure for them was they made 40,000 US dollars a minute. Um, and you know their combined uh, profits together with Chevron amount to almost $40 billion. Um, and at a time when you know, governments are having to um, blow holes in their budgets to, you know, help the vulnerable. And these large companies are making major profits and Gazprom as well. And we're expecting their profits to come in a few days. Um, you know, the question really does have to be asked of like, who is profiting from this current system and, and who is who is paying for it?
0: So let's talk about your solution, which is to get off gas. And I recently spoke with Rob Jackson at Stanford, who's done a study indicating that the leakage of methane is enormous. Uh, if you go up the chain, right from the, from the wells, from the fracking, through the distribution chain, storage, and into the household, and that the gas stove in your household is often leaking more methane than it when it's turned off than it is when it's turned on. So obviously, there's a there's a need to get off gas altogether. It was touted as the great bridge fuel to get off coal. But given how virulent methane is, it's not exactly a win for the environment. And there are moves on the part of the gas lobbyists in this country to stop cities from demanding that new buildings be electric only and not have a gas hookup. Here in Los Angeles now there's talk of, of passing such a law, not to ban it, but to actually impose it. But in Europe, are there any such moves with new buildings to not be hooked up to gas?
3: Yes, there's definitely. I think some serious conversations about you know the role of gas and. You know, we have to remember that, um, you know, in Europe, at least about a third of gas is used for to produce electricity. So the way that you you address that is that you have to build out more renewable energy, uh, you know, wind, solar and others that will, you know, push gas out of the market. Um, but heating is really the, the tough one, and you mentioned it there about, you know, this fight over um, gas in our cities and in our buildings. There are some countries and, and cities in Europe that are really taking this on. Um, I think the Netherlands would be one of the, one country that has announced that it will be trying to get gas out of its um, buildings. I think by a certain date, I think the date I may have heard is 2050. Um, Vienna, the capital of Austria, is another city that is really looking very closely at this and trying to push some strong measures to not only ban oil boilers, which they've done in the past, but also to, to, to get rid of gas. Um, in Ireland, a country that I'm from, that I'm more familiar with, the government has recently announced um, a set of measures. Some of them are emergency measures um, to to pay up to 80 percent of the cost of uh, some attic and cavity insulation as an as an emergency response to the um, energy crisis, but also longer-term and um, deep retrofit schemes to try and get houses uh, well insulated, comfortable, and shift them away from uh, gas boilers and onto other solutions like heat pumps. So yeah, there are conversations at, at various levels, um, but at at every level, the gas industry is there, you know, pushing back, pushing hard, pushing um, against conversations about decommissioning its assets, against you know the products that it sells. Um, And and it's really talking up a lot of, um, you know, false solutions, namely, you know, hydrogen in buildings. That's one of the the main solutions it talks about in Europe, which, I mean, is an incredibly expensive and uh, inefficient solution when you have something as efficient and and, uh, cheap as a heat pump as an alternative.
0: Sure. And if there's leakage of methane, hydrogen is an incredibly small molecule. So if methane leaks, then hydrogen would leak all over the place.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, But your call in your article at CNN, Tara, Putin can turn off Europe's gas tap. This is the solution. Green electricity is ultimately the solution, right?
3: Yes, it is absolutely the solution. We have to electrify. We have to electrify uh, our heating. We have to stop using gas to heat our buildings. We also have to address gas in heavy industry. You know, hydrogen can play a solution there, provided that that hydrogen is produced from, uh, you know, renewable electricity. But we also need to address the use of gas in our, um, in, our in our electricity generation. And that the, the only way that you can do that is by building out, um, you know, enough renewable electricity generation, you know, wind uh, farms and solar panels to, to displace that gas.
0: So when you mentioned, just in closing here, when you mentioned the lobby from German industry, what do they use gas for, short of uh, uh, generating electricity?
3: Um, gas is also used in high-temperature, um, heavy industry applications, things like uh, pr- production of steel, production of chemicals, production of cement. Those are what are considered the harder to abate or harder, you know, hard to electrify sectors, where it's not so easy to just, um, you know, use renewable electricity directly. You 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 will, in some cases, need a molecule or something that you can burn to get a high temperature. And in, in those instances, you know, things like uh, renewable hydrogen can be a solution. Um, the problem is when we're uh, being sold uh, some fossil-based hydrogen as a solution um, to those hard-to-abate sectors. And in that case, if you're not ultimately getting off fossil fuels, if you're still, you know, in, in some part of the chain burning fossil fuels, well, then you still have a, a fossil
0: fuel problem. But if you have massive solar arrays then through uh, the DC current through electrolysis you can create hydrogen can't you?
3: Yes exactly so you can produce hydrogen a couple of different ways Um, at least in Europe 99% of the hydrogen produced today is produced through fossil fuels and no carbon capture and storage is is applied at all and that's considered gray hydrogen. Um, There are there is some you know Pilots of what's called, referred to as blue hydrogen, which is where you do apply uh, carbon capture and storage, um, and and they're starting to invest now in, in renewable hydrogen, which is the type that you referred to, where you um, it's called electrolytic, where you split water using electricity and you create hydrogen and oxygen. That's the own that's the gold standard. You know that's the the cleanest hydrogen that you can produce. The problem is that, you know, we're going to be limited on how much hydrogen of, of that renewable hydrogen we have based on how much renewable, in, you know, electricity we have. We already need it for all of the other, you know, elect, electric applications we're going to have, like, you know, heat pumps, um, road transport, um, you know, all of the other things that we use electricity for. Uh, and when you understand that, you understand why hydrogen is not, a, a you know, a why a a large scale solution we have to keep it for those sectors that are very hard to abate like those high temperature um heavy industrial applications you know for example production of chemicals
0: well tara conley i thank you very much for joining us i appreciate um, your information thanks very much And again, I've been speaking with Tara Connolly, who is the senior gas campaigner at Global Witness, an international NGA working towards a more sustainable, just and equal planet. She has over a decade of experience in EU energy policy and has an article at CNN, Putin could turn off Europe's gas tap. This is the solution. And she joined us from Brussels. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the arrest and perp walk of the former president of Honduras, who the U.S. wants to extradite to face drugs and weapons charges, which could result in Juan Orlando Hernandez joining his brother Tony in a federal prison where he's serving a life sentence.
2: I've been waiting for you.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Annie Bird, who's a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala, where she advances justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System. U.S. Courts, and Guatemalan and Honduran Courts, and she was the co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009, was also director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. Welcome to Background Briefing, Annie Bird.
4: Um, Hi, thank you. Well, thanks
0: thanks for joining us, uh, Annie, and uh, you were in Honduras yesterday, the day that The former Honduran president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, did his perp walk in chains, shown to the press at the police headquarters in Tegucigalpa. Quite a fall from grace for a former president. What was the local reaction? I know there were members of the new President Castro's party demonstrating outside of the home of the former president, Hernandez. But in general, what's the word on the street?
4: Well, there's pretty widespread celebration. People have been calling for the arrest of Juan Orlando Hernandez for for years. He's long been known in the country to have, you know, to be a participant in drug trafficking operations. But the people of Honduras, you know, are also very angry with him because of the level of corruption that really just took down all the social networks and basic services and the in the country, like the hospital systems, the police systems, have just been devastated during his time in office. So people are pretty jubilant.
0: (laughs) Well, apparently the arrest is based upon a request from the United States Embassy from the United States government for his extradition to the United States on drug trafficking and weapons charges. We know about his brother, Tony, who's serving a life sentence in the United States for importing something like 200 tons of cocaine, which is an extraordinary amount of cocaine. But what do we know about the weapons charges? Do you know any, have anything on that?
4: Well, the weapons charges are generally about using military-grade weapons in the furtherance of drug trafficking operations. And... I'm not clear specifically what. Well, the thing is, in the you know, the first case in which Juan Orlando Hernandez was clearly implicated, as directly involved in trafficking, was the trial of a hunter and drug trafficker called Giovanni Fuentes, and in that case, information came out in which Juan Orlando, the president that's now been, former president that's now been arrested. Was implicated in discussions, also with the, his then um, national police director, uh, no, known as Tigre or uh, Bonilla or Juan Carlos Bonilla, in in which Juan Orlando, the president, was receiving bribes to ensure that uh, drugs would pass through the country, according to you know the declarations, the statements in this in this trial. On their way to the on the way to the States, and also assuring that his national police director would assist with that and the national police director is also being prosecuted for running death squads in the furtherance of the interests of drug trafficking organizations. So the the weapons charges are probably related to that is what I would would assume.
0: Well, uh, Hernandez was was in government for 12 years in the Congress before the presidency, and he ingratiated himself to the Trump administration by cooperating with President Trump on cracking down on migration. But in fact, the reverse happened, did it not, during his tenure because of his lawlessness and corruption. There was a massive outflow of immigrants from Honduras, taking a hazardous trip north through Mexico to the U.S. border. So what was the relationship between Hernandez and the Trump administration, given that the Drug Enforcement Agency had known all along about his drug ties, particularly his brother, of course, being arrested in New York, and apparently they have Juan hernandez Orlando on tape saying, we're going to shove cocaine up the nose of the Yankees.
4: Um, so I think that that statement came from a source, but it may, I'm not sure if it was a recording It's possible. I could be mistaken, but yeah, no, the Trump administration very much backed Juan Orlando Hernandez as there was a lot of questions about the like, really evident, actually not questions, but very evident fraud in the elections in both elections in which he, he won, but the U S and, and, you know, massive protests around the country, but, you know, the U S quickly recognized him as the winner of both those elections in spite of the really egregious fraud. So the people of Honduras have been, been concerned and pretty upset with the United States in, in maintaining this close relationship and, and political backing um, for Juan Orlando. And Not only that, but, they, but the U.S. embassy and U.S. agencies also cooperated very closely with, with Juan Orlando's uh, security forces that were, as the DEA, uh, you know, indictment, as the indictment in New York shows involved in death squad activity and the furtherance of their illegal activities. And it's just become a massive problem of just uh, a lot of violence and lawlessness related to the activities of drug organizations and just sort of the breakdown of a basic rule of law related to that. And that's caused. People to feel like they just can't live in their country with that level of insecurity and massacres happening constantly and kidnappings and no sense that there's any protection from their own police. Um, And so that, you know, the alternative is to leave the country.
0: Well, for the longest time throughout Hernandez's tenure, street gangs have controlled entire towns and neighborhoods. Is that still the case? You were there yesterday. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it is?
4: No, it is, it is still the case, yeah.
0: So it's a huge job then for the uh, new government of President Castro, surely. I mean, how do you clean up neighborhoods yeah. when you got corrupt police?
4: Well, absolutely. And, and the problem is that also during uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez's tenure, um, they, they, he received a huge amount of international financing through loans from the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Central American Bank for Economic Integration, um, you know, which just you know, disappeared into corruption as opposed to actually improving the lives of services for, for the people. And, and now this government has a tremendous debt burden where a, a very large section of the national budget just goes to servicing the debt. That, that Juan Orlando left behind. Um, and so on top of that, trying to clean up, you know, the, not, you know, the, the mess that he, that he made with all the corruption in the hospital system, in the police, you know, and just across the board in all sort of aspects of, of, of life that the government intervenes
0: in. And again, I'm speaking with Annie Bird, who's a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala, where she advances justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. Courts, and Guatemalan and Honduran Courts. And she was the co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009, and was also director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. And... She joins us from Costa Rica. So the role of uh, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley seems to have been key here. He, along with other progressive U.S. senators, have been calling for the arrest and extradition of the former president of Honduras, Hernandez, for some time. Did he play a role in getting the the new government to respond to the U.S. request for extradition?
4: Well, I'm not sure, <laughs> Um, I, I think there was a lot of pressure from lots of different offices in Congress. Merkley has been particularly leading the charge recently. And then when Kamala Harris came down for the inauguration, um, it was also a focal point of discussion in, in Honduras, the need for the, the extradition. So that message, she, she probably heard that.
0: Well, why then didn't Hernandez not leave the country? Apparently, he showed pictures of him playing with his dogs to shoot down rumors that he had fled the country. So, why do you think he stayed?
4: I think he he wanted to he wanted to create the image that he was the the perception that he was innocent and and in fact that that, that extradition had not been. Requested because there had not been any kind of confirmation that extradition had been requested until I guess it was Monday night or late Monday afternoon. And, you know, he had been conferred a sort of limited immunity by the Central American regional diplomatic body called Parlesen. Um And so you, traditionally it takes a while um, to wade through all the different. Uh, immunities, and then particularly when, you know, given that he had, you know, named the the constitutional court that that he left behind, had, na- you know, there had been sort of irregular movements of ch- changes in the in the court during his tenure, um, and so it had been a court that was expected to protect him. Um, And so it took everyone a little bit by surprise that the extradition came through so quickly. And actually, right now, he's in the hearing at the Supreme Court, the the extradition hearing, which would order, you know, this is where the final order for his extradition will happen. It's assumed that if they authorized his arrest, then they're likely to to approve the extradition.
0: Well, as we speak, there are about 150 supporters of Hernandez National Party outside of the Supreme Court today where he is being arraigned for extradition to the United States. they're Apparently they're chanting, you are not alone. And he was, uh, Hernandez was arrested yesterday, Tuesday, on a request from the U.S. government for charges of drug trafficking, using weapons for drug trafficking and conspiracy to use weapons in drug trafficking, and apparently US prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, the ones who nailed his brother Tony and put him away for life, I assume they're waiting for uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez to show up, right? So is there any possibility that the Supreme Court would rule against the US request?
4: I I doubt that. I think that if they authorized the arrest, it's likely that they will um, authorize the the extradition. Um, But you never know. I mean, they'll do strange things. (laughs) And he is also appealing the, the extradition, the the arrest. So you know, there still are a number of legal measures that have to be undertaken here. It still remains to be seen that he'll actually be extradited. Though it's likely that that he will be.
0: Well, I thought that he pretty much stacked the Supreme Court and the court with cronies during his tenure. So, has the new government really created such a change that uh, a change of mind? Or what, what do you well, I,
4: I think the new government has come in with a strong sense of support from the United States. Um, and that that has significantly changed the atmosphere and the sort of uh, power relations within the country, and that could affect um, his support within the Supreme Court.
0: So you mentioned uh, that Vice President Kamala Harris was in Honduras for the inauguration of the, of the new government, and. She, of course, has been given this portfolio of dealing with the immigration at its source and the notion being that the best way to stop immigrants making this desperate journey from Central America through Mexico to the U.S. and only to be stuck on the border is to make life more livable in the countries of El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. So where does that stand now? The guy, that Bukele, that runs... El Salvador is is a sort of authoritarian, of kind of scary kind of guy. Actually, he's now trying to make El Salvador the the crypto capital of the world, and because cryptocurrency is somewhat shaky and fraudulent to begin with, and it's a perfect vehicle for money laundering. You know, you've spent what years and years in Honduras, uh, in Guatemala, trying to bring about justice and human rights reform. So. Give us a picture of where things stand, because I guess the seeing Hernandez in change and doing a perp walk is probably giving people a, the impression that maybe there's a new sheriff in town and they're going to clean up Dodge. Yeah,
4: I think that right now there's, for the first time in a long time, there's a, a lot of hope um, and there's a sense that things can change. There's also just very, very big obstacles, and it's a, it's a really big task this new government has to confront. Um, The justice system is just permeated with corruption, and as is the, are the security forces, and that's long term. You know, it takes long term work to, to turn that around. The state is is absolutely in debt in huge amounts of debt and has nothing to work with in terms of resources at, uh, you know, and and at the same time has these enormous expectations from the population that want to see, you know, to see their, their promises for reform, you know, come to fruition. And, so it's going to be it's a it's a challenging situation for the new government. Um, I think there's at the same time people do understand what an enormous challenge it is that that they are facing. So I think there's understanding um, the you know of, of how complex it is generally among the people. But, you know, they really will need help. <laughs> there needs to be the, the the level of debt needs to be addressed. It's completely unsustainable. There also needs to be accountability among the development banks that have been financing this corrupt government without any kind of, you know, I mean, just that have been financing this very corrupt government. I mean, even, you know, finan- the Inter-American Development Bank financed $60 million in loans, to the National Police Force, which was, you know, loans that were signed by and under the direct supervision of the security minister, Julian Pacheco, who is someone else who has been named in the New York trials as implicated as part of the drug trafficking operations. And so, I mean, you know, that's just one of many, many loans that have been pretty egregious to this government that was so so visibly corrupt and so wild, widely denounced for these kinds of activities, and it's very concerning that you know these institutions, which are supposed to be safe, you know, promoting an end to poverty and equitable development for the people, um, have been pouring money in to this corrupt government and now you know, expect it to be repaid and then leave the new government coming in to try to clean up this enormous mess with without any resources. So I think that's something that really needs to be looked at.
0: Sure. Well, it sounds like a daunting task. And I thank you for joining us here today, Annie Bird.
4: Okay. Well, thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Annie Bird, a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala, where she advances justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. courts in Guatemalan and Honduran courts, and she was a co-founder of Rights Action and ran us office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009, and was also director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019, and she joined us And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the
2: kids to the park and disappeared by